the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this installment of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you, as always, for joining me. I can follow the show, danproftshow.com. Also, social media, at Dan Proft, at Dan Proft Show. And uh, President Trump gave a wide-ranging interview, Sean Hannity, last night, uh, including a discussion of the economy and, by extension, the coronavirus's impact on the economy, how he thinks things are doing, all things considered. And here's where the pres- what the president had to say. Well, I think what we've done is unprecedented. Uh, the largest tax cuts in history, uh, trade deals all over the place. I mean, they're... They're going to start kicking in fairly soon. Unfortunately, by the time we get to the election, they'll just be partially kicked in. But the deal with China, $250 billion a year, the deal with uh, Japan, and it's a partial deal. I'll go back, and we're going to make it much bigger even. But it's $40 billion a year. The deal with South Korea, the the U.S.-Mexico uh, deal, the U.S.-Canada deal, the USMCA combined uh, one of the biggest trade deals ever made to deal with China is actually, you know, right in that same category. It's it's an incredible thing. What what we've done, we've rebuilt the military. We've taken care of our vets. Uh, we got a choice. And he goes on to list another number of other accomplishments, not directly economic, uh, economy related. Uh, but the question is, uh, will it matter if uh, the net result in 2020 going into the November election is a significantly slowed economy, and this uh, per a report out from Goldman Sachs, where they have cut a one percentage point off projected GDP growth for the 2020 calendar year. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by Jimmy Pethokoukis, CNBC contributor, columnist for the American Enterprise Institute. James, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Uh, thanks for having me on, Dan. So, um, yeah, the uh, you, you uh, tweeted a, a thread about this a Goldman Sachs report. And so uh, President Trump points to some accomplishments in his first term un- unquestionably. But at the end of the day, people are going to be feeling uh, perhaps influenced, likely influenced by where they feel they are as they go to uh, vote in November. And uh, that Goldman Sachs report presents some p- p- potential trouble on the horizon for President Trump's reelection. Well, I don't think there's uh, anybody, whether it's, you know, a Wall Street bank or government forecasters who think that right now, um, you know, the virus is boosting the economy. It's just really a matter of how much it's slowing the economy and how quickly the economy will, um, you know, you know, rebound. And that's, you know, it's, it's very difficult making economic forecasts. It's difficult anyways. And then you have right. Uh, a kind of an, uh, an odd thing driving the economy, which is this virus, and people don't know how fast it will spread, how lethal it is. Um, so that makes all this you know, very, very difficult. But if you're assuming, if your baseline case is this is going to be a very close election, 
And also part of that baseline case is that a big thing helping the president is an economic expansion that continues sort of roll forward. It's you know not spectacular by any means, but it's kind of slow and steady. Um, but that's a that that is a tailwind. And if that economy slows at really much at all in an, uh, for an election that's already supposed to be really really close, yeah, I think that's a uh, I think that's a big danger. Now, now the the caveat, of course, is uh, people understand the coronavirus is. I think people generally understand outside of the House and Senate Democrat caucuses that uh, the coronavirus is beyond the control of any particular politician. So it really becomes an assessment of the quality of the response. And uh, uh, that would be factored in, too, in any sort of understanding about Trump's first term. The policies, you know, I mean, he, he can make the argument, look, the policies that we pursued created economic growth, low unemployment and wage growth. We got hit by this coronavirus. We had a competent response, assuming that's a credible position, which it seems to be at this point. And uh, we'll recover from this as long as we continue to pursue the same policies we were pursuing up until we were hit with this exogenous event. Well, I mean, how many people does it take not to not to sort of mentally make that you know, that internal argument that you just made for it to hurt the president? Um, I think it's interesting that you know, in 2000, um, the, you know, as part of the internet boom, the economy was just blazing, still up four percent, and then come after several years of very, very strong growth. And in the second half of that year, the economy slowed down. Um, you know, we didn't see a you know a tremendous spike in unemployment, and for a lot of people, you know, it probably really didn't feel like anything was uh, anything was different. Yet. You can make the case that sort of on the margin, a, a slower economy, there are enough people who sort of started noticing it. Maybe they, you know, maybe they, maybe they were trying to find a job and it took longer, or they lost a job and it took longer to find a new job. Now, I think we're again, I think we're talking, you know, kind of very small percentages here, but in a close election, that might be enough. And some people might just take a more baseline sort of things just don't seem like they were as good as they were before, and, and that's enough. Again, if this was an economy that was you know, 5% and the president was wildly popular, I don't think it would make a difference. But that's, those, you know, those aren't the case. Yeah, it's more tenuous. I mean, it's a, no, it's a fair question that you raise. Just the, comparing it, though, to the run-up to the 2000 election, you didn't have an incumbent, and you didn't have an incumbent with the sort of uh, fierce loyalty that Trump is— uh, that's that Trump seems it's to not have. Exactly the same yeah. situation. Yeah. Um, but I, mean, I think there's no doubt uh, that the administration isn't just saying, eh, people will know. People, no, no. People understand that yes. it's not my fault because they obviously seem very concerned. They're trying to make the case. Um, they're, you know, saying, well, listen, you know, you know don't, don't be afraid. Continue <laughs> to buy stocks. Um, so obviously, you know, they would rather have this not be the case. And, and in no way does this, I think, add, you know, and again, if if all the rest of the world is collapsing because the virus is spreading, and the U.S. is a safe haven of health, then probably it doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean that's it's all fair to play that out because it informs the the uh, uh, administration's response, as you say, not both rhetorically as well as as professionally, substantively with respect to the virus, with uh, just that eight billion dollar uh, spending package approved by Congress uh, yesterday to. Uh, provide um, more resources with which the administration can deal with the outbreak. Uh, I wanted to get your reaction as well to not just the uh, 50 basis point cut in the interest rate yesterday by the Fed, but also 
the uh, or excuse me, the uh, Tuesday by the Fed, but the um, uh, the prospect that there may, may be more rate cuts imminently, that uh, there really is a race to uh, zerp, a race to zero interest rate uh, policy here going on in the West. Well, I think I think the market expects there to be more interest rates, uh, uh, interest rate cuts. Um, you mentioned earlier, uh, you know, port from Goldman Sachs, and this is true. With, I think you know most of the banks who are who are forecasting low interest, who are forecasting a slowdown, but they're also forecasting Fed rate cuts. So that's sort of built into all these forecasts that that the Fed the Fed will act. So even with those rate cuts, they're still expecting. Um, you know, a slowdown. Well, and going forward, yeah. I don't know how much, I mean, what else can the Fed do? Well, the Fed can really they can start buying stuff. They can start buying bonds again, like they did during, you know, quantitative easing. They can, you know, again, uh, interest rates are already pretty low. They can buy a lot of things. Uh, they can buy, you know, treasury bonds. They can buy mortgage direct security. They can buy a lot of things. Uh, but yet, if you if you still think that's not enough, and I think that's what the Fed Chairman Powell was suggesting that, that there needs to be some sort of uh, uh, fiscal stimulus, so there's a spending program or tax cuts to help bolster monetary policy. Yeah, I, I, I wanted to get your description, too, of the, the uh, consequences of pursuing the, the race to zero and uh, possibly QE, as you were describing. We, I talked about it on, on uh, my program a little bit last night. Just the, the prospect of the uh, damage that sort of monetary policy does to financial institutions and thus, in the medium term, our economy. Um, I don't know. Um, the rates have been low uh, for a long time, and rates have been even lower uh, in, in other countries, such as Japan. And, you know, you know what's driving that? I mean, I think demographics uh, are probably a, uh, a big factor. And you know, and so it's sort of no, if that's the case, it's sort of no no surprise that you have Japan, which has you know a very old population, um, but you know they're sort of the leading, uh, they're on the leading edge of the demographic issue. So maybe also the on the leading edge of financial implications uh, of those demographics. Uh, I'm you know I'm not so concerned about the damage to you know financial institutions or savers. Um, to me. I look at that and I think, well, I, we need to be doing more to uh, boost the growth potential of the economy. And that's what I would like to focus on. Uh, the Fed can do its job, but over the long term, all it can do is try to tweak demand so we grow at our potential. And right now, our potential might not be particularly high, so that's what we need to focus on with a variety of policies, whether it's tax, regulation, public investment, um, across the board. He is James Pathakoukas, CNBC contributor and columnist for the American Enterprise Institute. James, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Dan. I appreciate it. Take care. I wish I knew you when I was young. I could have got so high. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and uh, boy, I'm old enough to have lived through the first three years of the Trump administration, where anytime President Trump criticized uh, Sotomayor, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, even recently calling uh, on them to recuse themselves from any cases involving him because of comments that they have made, 
critical of the president and uh, some of his decision making. Ruth Bader Ginsburg made critical of the president before he was the president as a candidate, you'll recall. Uh, but all any any of those comments about uh, Supreme Court justices or any criticism of any other individual uh, who wears robes to work was seen as destabilizing. Uh, this is a president who uh, doesn't believe in independent judiciary. This is a president who is threatening the separation of powers in our representative republic. What about when the Senate Minority Leader threatened Supreme Court justices? Do the same criticisms attach? Chuck Schumer, on the occasion of the high court taking up the Louisiana heartbeat bill case, had this to say about the case and two justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. And they're taking away fundamental rights. I want to tell you, Gorsuch, I want to tell you, Kavanaugh, you have released the whirlwind and you will pay the price. You won't know what hit you if you go forward with these awful decisions. Well, please continue detail. Pay the price. You won't know what hits you. Uh, this drew the uh, unusual public rebuke from Chief Justice Roberts. John Roberts saying justices know that criticism comes with the territory, but threatening statements of this sort from the highest levels of government are not only inappropriate, they're dangerous. All members of the court will continue to do their job without fear or favor from whatever quarter. Uh-huh. Now, just to give you a flavor for some of Chuck Schumer's colleagues as it pertains to this case and just generally. Uh, here's uh, the MC of the rally yesterday at which you heard uh, Schumer speak. Let's hear it for Senator Schumer! Let's hear it for all the people of abortion! Let's hear it for our trans folks who have abortion! Okay, okay. The Denise Williams of the pro-death movement uh, let's hear it for the boy that you aborted, I guess. Ted Cruz, senator from Texas, also weighed in on Chuck Schumer's threatening rhetoric. Well, look, it's, it's, it's obvious that the spokesperson is trying to dig Chuck Schumer out of the hole he dug for himself. You heard the word Schumer said there. He said, I want to tell you, Gorsuch. I want to tell you, Kavanaugh. And he pointed. He wasn't talking to Senate Republicans. He was talking to those two justices. He was threatening them quite directly. You, you, you will reap the war, whirlwind. You will pay the price. That is an unambiguous threat. Now, whether it's a threat of, of political retribution uh, or, or, or something even worse, that's not clear. But whatever it is, it's judicial intimidation. Yeah. And uh, Cruz responding to Schumer's <laughs> Schumer's spo- uh, spokesman spinning after the fact, saying, oh, he was talking about uh, Senate Republicans are going to pay a political price. He, he didn't say Senate Republicans, as Cruz rightly points out. He sp- said you, Justice Gorsuch, you, Justice Kavanaugh, specifically. Right. I know the focus is on Schumer, but he wasn't the only hysteric out uh, protesting the hearing of this case. Remember, this case hasn't been decided yet. We're still in the hearing phase. We'll get a decision in the Louisiana heartbeat case before June is out, of course. Uh, But uh, all the stars were out, not just Pagliacci. Uh, You had uh, the Socialist Spice Girls represented by MF or Spice. That would be Rashida Tlaib. This past year, I realized, my, 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 are they obsessed with our bodies, how we talk, how we look, what we stand for. I mean, this type of policing of our bodies is so interconnected to all the social justice movements all around the country. I I don't really know what she's saying. I couldn't be less interested in Rashida Tlaib's body, and I think I'm 
with a supermajority of Americans on that. Uh, as you know, the heartbeat bill is about um, the body inside a woman's body, as well as the woman, and not because it's a matter of control, because as the Louisiana Unsafe Abortion Protect argues, abortion hurts women, the mom, as well as the unborn child. And so the argument that's being made uh, is that restricting access to abortion benefits women. And the state's brief, the state of Louisiana's brief, contends that abortion providers uh, don't have standing to challenge the law on behalf of their patients because those abortion providers have a conflict of interest, seeing as the procedure hurts women. Uh, this is in part the case uh, that the uh, argument that will be adjudicated by the court, and it imp- implicates other heartbeat bills, other heartbeat laws now in other states, including Texas. Uh, Ayanna Presley, Francis Parker Spice, that's a little bit of inside baseball. She went to this exclusive private school in Chicago for high school named Francis Parker, which is a real incubator of champagne socialists. So, uh, you know, the rest of the nation calls them the squad. I call them the Socialist Spice Girls, and I got little names for each one of them, just like, you know, back in the day uh, when it was girl power. Ayanna Presley on uh, the court taking up the case, and, and specifically commentary on those same justices, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. Listen to this. And we have two alleged sexual predators on the bench. Oh, and Thomas. Of the highest court of the land. With the power to determine our reproductive freedoms, I still believe Anita Hill. I s- of course, uh, just in time for the uh, Biden coronation. So, yeah, Gorsuch, uh, not one of the alleged sexual predators. Of course, that's reserved for Kavanaugh and Thomas. But you get the gist of it, uh, taking the pot shots they can take, continuing to extend their phony baloney lines of argumentation and character assassination. Going back to Supreme Court Justice John Roberts, too. This is a moment of truth for him. Uh, Will he uh, go the way of the John Roberts that uh, upheld Obamacare? Or will he go the way of uh, moving against the worst Supreme Court decision since Dred Scott? That would be Roe v. Wade in 1973. As Jonathan Turley, George Washington law professor, argues in his piece in The Hill, Roberts, at best, is viewed as a fair-weather friend and, at worst, a, a furtive foe on the issue of abortion. There's not a lot of room left to avoid declaring whether a state like Louisiana can impose conditions on abortion services, such as requiring physicians have admitting privileges at a local hospital. What's most striking about the case is that it involves very similar issues as the whole Women's Health v. Hellerstadt case in 2016, but it will be argued to a different court. Roberts voted in the minority when there was no chance the Supreme Court would open up abortion to state limitations. Uh, Now Kennedy's gone. And uh, so the dynamic has changed. The Louisiana case presents the same type of restrictions as the Texas case did and from the same circuit. I mentioned the Texas uh, Louisiana heartbeat law being similar to the Texas law. I was thinking of that Texas case that Turley refers to. So just correcting the record there. Uh, The same type of restrictions that the Texas case and comes from the same circuit in the Texas case. The fear was that limitations would dramatically reduce the number of abortion clinics. In the dissent that Roberts joined, Justice Alito rejected claims of a causal link between such limitations and the reduction of the number of clinics. Uh, Critics of Louisiana law argue the same causal link with the bigger potential to cut the number of clinics in the state to one. And that goes back to the argument I referenced earlier, which is the argument that abortion hurts women. The clinics don't even have the standing to challenge the law because they're inherently conflicted. Where will Justice Roberts be? 
I think we have a pretty good idea where the other justices will be. And uh, perhaps, perhaps, uh, maybe hopefully, uh, Chuck Schumer and the rest of the hysterics uh, threatening Supreme Court justices may push Roberts the other way. That'd be nice to see for a change. This is Dan listening to the Dan Proft show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft show. We uh, mentioned at the top of the hour in our discussion with Jimmy Petakukas that President Trump gave a wide-ranging interview to Sean Hannity last night, our colleague. And it was indeed wide ranging. It included a discussion of revisiting Biden and Burisma. And there's all kinds of reasons to revisit it, not just because the race is now crystallized, particularly with Warren dropping out as Biden versus Bernie, but also because there's this ongoing investigation by Senate Republicans, the lead being Senator Ron Johnson from Wisconsin, that's uh, been two plus years underway dates back to Hillary Clinton's email investigation. It includes Biden, the Bidens, and Burisma, uh, even though it's more expansive than that. President Trump on whether or not, uh, you know, he's going to make an issue of Biden and uh, Burisma. That will be a major issue in the campaign. I will bring that up all the time because I don't see any way out. I don't see any way for them. I don't see how they can answer those questions. And maybe they can. I hope they can. I'd actually prefer it that they can, but I don't believe they'll be able to answer those questions. That was purely corrupt. Well, they've already shown, and at least Joe Biden's already shown, he can't answer them consistently, which is not exclusive to Burisma, but it includes Burisma. This becomes a problem. Ron Johnson was on with Martha McCallum explaining where they're at in the process and uh, uh and, and kind of reminding people the scope of the investigation that's been underway for some time. My investigation in possible corruption in the Obama administration dates back to Hillary Clinton's email scandal. It was our oversight that uh, ended up releasing most of the Peter Strzok, Lisa Page texts. I joined Chuck Grassley's investigation into possible DNC involvement uh, with Ukraine to affect the 2016 election uh, back in 2017. And so it's not our fault that Joe Biden, Hunter Biden, got wrapped up in the whole Ukrainian story. But we were not closing our eyes to this. And I have no idea why anybody would object to us obtaining records from a U.S. consulting firm run by former Clinton administration officials uh, that is basically using Hunter Biden's name to uh, strong arm the State Department to, to curry benefits yeah. for a corrupt Ukrainian oil company. So that's what we're trying to do here. But but our investigation and our oversight is much broader than just this Ukrainian story with Hunter Biden and even the DNC. Just uh, to put a fine point on it, I know these uh, all the details get lost in the many months in, in between here. But um, just before uh, he the, the consulting firm he's talking about run by uh, former Clintonistas is called Blue Star Strategies. John Solomon had this report on what Johnson is referencing back in September of last year. John Solomon, of, who was at the Hill at the time, just before Joe Biden forced Victor Shokin's firing. That's the Ukrainian prosecutor in question. 
one of the principals at Blue Star Strategies, this public relations firm that Johnson was referencing, though not by name, that was retained by Burisma, the, one of the principals at Blue Star Strategies met with the number two official at the Ukrainian embassy in Washington and asked to meet officials in Kiev around the same time Joe Biden visited there. Uh, a, a Ukrainian embassy employee emailed this Blue Star Strategy, former Clintonista, with regard to the meetings in Kiev, I suggest that you wait until next week when there is an expected vote of the government's reshuffle. Ukraine, the uh, Ukraine's Washington embassy confirmed the conversations between this State Department official, uh, this U- Ukrainian embassy official and this Blue Star Strategies person, uh, saying the reference to the shakeup in, U- in Ukrainian government was not specifically referencing the prosecutor's firing or anything to do with Burisma. But then the same consultant with this PR company asked one of Ukraine's embassy workers to open the door for meetings with Ukraine's prosecutors about their Burisma investigation, according to these memos. Eventually, this consulting firm would pay Ukrainian that Ukrainian official money for his help with the prosecutor's office. And, you know, it goes on from there. I don't want to get too deep into the the uh, cloak and dagger nature of this. But this is a real thing. And uh, we're going to get real details uh, in the uh, next couple of months, according to Ron Johnson, per a couple of years worth of investigation into all of this. Again, this is not just Biden and Burisma, but it includes Biden and Burisma as part of a look at Obama era public corruption generally. We are preparing right now is a timeline and it is incredibly interesting and it raises all kinds of questions. It connects all kinds of dots. And that really, you know, what I'm hoping to be able to do within the next couple of months is gather enough information, verify it through things like this subpoena, and then issue at least an interim report so the American people can see what this possible corruption is. And again, it's, it's bullying from a well-connected, swampy consulting firm. I'll tell you what, uh, you got another report to look forward to. The Durham report, and now a reminder, the Johnson report. This is Dan Proft. All men and women created by go, you know the you know the thing. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're pleased to be joined by our friend, KT McFarlane, former First Deputy National Security Advisor to President Trump, author of the new book, Revolution, Trump, Washington, and We the People. KT, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. It's great to be with you. Now, your revolution is different than the Bernie Sanders revolution, I, I presume. <laughs> well, right? but, it, yeah, but it comes from the same sense of complete dissatisfaction with the status quo. He goes in the other direction. I mean, I go in the Trump direction, which is fix the economy, realter American relationships with countries which no longer need our support. And we've been sort of subsidizing their security and trade agreements for years. So it's Bernie, on the other hand, says, let's make government bigger. Let's take more of your money. Let's control more of your lives. But both of them come from the same sense of dissatisfaction with the status quo in Washington, the unelected permanent bureaucrats who decide things for the rest of us. Bernie just wants more of them, and I think we should have a lot fewer of them. 
uh, as we're in the midst of uh, trying to combat the spread of the coronavirus, what are the sort of the geopolitical and national security lessons we should learn from the Chinese response to the coronavirus? That's a really important question that I think that it'll take a while for people to focus on once they get past the panic. But for the last five, eight years, the Chinese have been going around the world saying we're the new world leaders. Our model is government control, state control, state capitalism, less rights for the people, more government control over all aspects of people's lives, economic, personal, social, etc. And the Chinese have been going around the world saying, look at democracy. It's finished. Washington is dysfunctional. Look at the economic crisis of 2018. Free market capitalism is dysfunctional. It doesn't work. And they've been getting a lot of attention. I mean, they go to international meetings like Davos with all the world leaders gathered in Switzerland, and they're touted, Xi Jinping, the permanent Chinese president, he's touted as the new world order. He's the guy that's going to be the Chinese century. China knows better than America. Free market capitalism and democracy are on the wane. And so he's gone around and gotten an awful lot of attention and excitement. And then when Trump was elected president, then the liberal, at least worldwide, said, aha, America's now totally finished, and we're going to look to China for leadership. But look at what China did. They knew about this virus in December of last year. They could have contained it. It would have cost them a little bit economically. It would have been embarrassing for them. But they could have contained it, and they didn't. They didn't do it until it had already spread far beyond its borders. They even sent a delegation of hundreds of Chinese to the White House in January to meet in the Oval Office with the president to sign the phase one trade agreement between the United States and China. That is the the height of irresponsibility of a great nation. So I think what they've shown to the world is, look, they're really, they're not the model of the future. Look what they did to the rest of the world to sort of save themselves a little bit of embarrassment and maybe a knock in their um, economic production in a certain part of China. And now what has they leashed on the world? In addition to that, they've shown that they know how to control this virus because they went around arresting people. But I don't think the Chinese communists are going to go quietly, even if the world decides that that they're not the model. And I wonder if that makes the prospect of the Thucydides trap more more dangerous. Now, you know, the Thucydides trap is a really important issue, and that's that um, that Thucydides says that great nations, when there's a rising nation and a falling nation, declining nation, they most of the time go to war, and both sides hurt as a result of it. And so the Chinese view themselves as the rising nation, and they view the United States very definitively as on permanent decline. And their big worry is not that they're going to have anything impeding their sort of conquest of the world. It's that they might have to fight in order to do it. Now, they've used, they've used economic warfare so far, and they, they have an intention to really, I think, create a new Roman Empire with their one belt, one road, um, maritime, uh, land-based trade route, and then their sea-based trade route that goes through the South China Sea. They want to control the 70 or so countries that are along those trade routes that go from Europe to Asia, from the Middle East to Asia, and from the East Coast to Asia. Yeah, there's a certain pragmatism to Trump that has appeal, particularly um, in the decisiveness that goes along with that pragmatism. He talked a little bit about that with Hannity last night, where uh, they discussed the criticism he received early on for imposing travel restrictions, you know, the, the knee-jerk reaction of, well, this is another example of Trump's xenophobia and fear of the other and stigmatizing the other and so on and so forth. 
Well, uh, 30 days later, it doesn't look that way, does it? No, and I think, look, at this point, there's their media and his opposition from official Washington, is they're, they're just so driven by Trump hatred and bloodlust. There's nothing Trump can do that they're ever going to congratulate him for or even approve. Um, everything is going to be criticized, everything that Trump does, and I think we just need to accept that. And that's why Trump has used Twitter as one of his ways of doing it. But that's why he does these in, you know, live interviews. They don't get to edit him out. And I think that's his way of getting over the heads of the Washington media, which is 97% Trump hating, and how he speaks directly to the American people. I wanted to get your uh, take on the uh, broad outlines of a possible peace deal with the Taliban. Is this, uh, as some have observed, the sort of least worst option available to America? Yeah, I think that's true. And, you know, I've been a longtime critic of America's over-involvement in the Middle East and spending what, four, three, four, five trillion dollars by the time you add it all up uh, between Afghanistan and Iraq and on wars that we couldn't win and that we, we and American lives were lost, American families were destroyed as a result of this. And I, I've long thought that we missed the ball. We took our eye off the ball because we were so focused on nation building and creating democracies in the most backward countries in the world, which didn't want democracies, and that we took our eye off the real problem, which is the growing threat of China. So whatever deal we get in Afghanistan, fine. Whether it holds, fine. Doesn't matter. Let's just get out of there. We've done enough. We've offered democracy to these people on a platter, and they haven't wanted it. So time to leave. She is KT McFarland, former first deputy national security advisor to President Trump, author of the new book, Revolution, Trump, Washington, and We the People. KT, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. It's a pleasure, Dan. The more you'll know, this is the Dan Proft Show. This is 60 Seconds of Sanity with Dan Proft. The timer starts now. Yes to the goodies, no to the gulags. Big government Democrat politicians are happy to be the puppets of corporate interests so long as the strings don't show. They need rhetorical deniability for the campaign trail. Similarly, Democrat primary voters generally embrace socialism by any other name, so long as you don't lay bare the repressive implications. They, too, need rhetorical deniability, so they may continue to tell themselves they are the true heirs of American values, or, you know, the thing, as Joe Biden affectionately terms it. Bernie Sanders flamed out on Super Tuesday because he couldn't keep the Bolshevik in him under wraps on 60 Minutes two weeks earlier. Rather than sticking to his fairy tale of socialism as harmonious Nordic-style communal living, Sanders let his hammer and sickle show in the form of cringeworthy praise for Fidel Castro's literacy program in communist Cuba. Only the most ardent Reds will stomach the, yeah, the death squads were unfortunate, but hey, the book club's line of whataboutism. Democrat primary voters came to Bernie Sanders for the free goodies, but they couldn't stay for the gulags. And this is why, in my estimation, he underperformed. 
Uh, now, uh, as much uh, fanfare as was attendant to Bloomberg getting out yesterday and rolling in for Biden, Warren getting out today in the talk and the uh, reporting that she and her camp had been in talks with the Sanders camp about uh, folding in for him and uh, supporting uh, Bernie Sanders, endorsing support and, 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 and campaigning for Bernie Sanders. Uh, that, that was reporting that was hours before it leaked out that uh, Warren was going to uh, signal, and I assume smoke signal, her exit from the presidential race. How does that shake out? Does that change the dynamic much between Bernie and Biden in Michigan and beyond? I don't know. It remains to be seen. But remember, uh, Bernie Sanders clawed back to well within striking distance after all the hoopla of Super Tuesday, Biden's performance in Super Tuesday had subsided. Uh, now under 60 delegates behind Biden with uh, Bernie's victory in California, he is. And so this is um, this is far from over. The, the question will be, you know, just how low is Bernie Sanders' ceiling? Just how low is Bernie Sanders' ceiling? If, as uh, David Marcus, who we'll talk to a little bit later in the show, says that this is a referendum on Barack Obama, if Biden is able to make it a referendum on Barack Obama, then I think you're looking at uh, Joe Biden as the nominee. If Bernie Sanders is is able to make it a referendum on the swamp, sort of a socialist version of what Trump did in 2016, then I wouldn't say Bernie is dead quite yet. Oh, one other thing just about Bernie and the billionaires, since I referenced his uh, his references to Nordic style socialism, you know, it's not repressive, no death squads. It's just all, uh, you know, communal living, share and share alike. <laughs> this is great. A post from our friend Mark Perry over at Carpe Diem blog at the American Enterprise Institute. Sweden and Norway. Billion billionaires per million people, according to Forbes and the United Nations, Sweden, three point two five per persons per three point two five billionaires per million people in Sweden, two point eight billionaires per million people in Norway, one point eight billionaires per million people in the United States, more billionaires per capita in Sweden and Norway than USA. And none of those people should exist, according to Bernie. Looks like uh, he may have to invade and take over Sweden and Norway if uh, the revolution comes to the USA, eh? Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Because they got the beat, the campus beat, the campus beat. Yeah, the campus beat. Yeah, and uh, there's a reason that uh, the sainted William F. Buckley said half a century ago that he would rather be governed by the first 1,000 people out of the Boston telephone book than the entire faculty at Harvard. The uh, reason... The Harvard Crimson's 2020 faculty survey series, yeah, exploring the political beliefs of Harvard professors. They uh, sent out uh, more than 1,000 surveys to Harvard faculty members, got about 260 respondents. Uh, Who are they supporting for president? 44% of Harvard faculty members support Elizabeth Warren. 20% support Bernie Sanders. Of the 260 respondents, three support Trump. In terms of where they, you find them on the uh, ideological spectrum, according to them, uh, 38% very liberal, 41% liberal, 19% moderate, which means liberal, 
and 1.46% conservative. The institution regarded as, you know, routinely regarded as the best university in the country. Is it? Hmm. Uh, this uh, leads nicely to a piece written in the American Conservative, AmericanConservative.com, by University of Pennsylvania law professor Amy Wax about why you must stop donating to your alma mater, particularly if it's Harvard or another Ivy League school. And that says something coming from a law professor at an Ivy League school. Amy Wax joins us now. Again, she is the Robert Mundheim Professor of Law at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. Amy, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, surprised by those Harvard numbers? No, not at all. Typical right. of schools of that caliber, of that rank, and uh, I'm sure it's the same at my own institution, University of Pennsylvania. I'm sure it's the same at uh, the school I went to, which is Northwestern as well. Uh, every time Northwestern is in the news, the value of my degree declines. And so um, make the case for abandoning, uh, for, you know, for, the, for the defunding of your alma mater. You know, make it personal. Stop sending money to alma maters if they are the likes of Penn, Harvard, other Ivy League schools, Northwestern, Berkeley, et cetera, et cetera. That is the point of my article, yes. That is the message that I am trying to convey in uh, in my piece in the American Conservative. And why? Why is it? Why not? Uh, well, you know, why not? We just need more conservatives in the uh, professorate. We just need more conservative administrators. It, this can be salvaged. Well, if only it were that easy. Uh, it's going to be very hard to bring balance back to these institutions uh, because the people within the institution serve as gatekeepers for uh, who gets to teach there, who gets on staff there, even the students that are admitted. And now uh, out of California and other institutions, we have a kind of loyalty of diversity test for even getting admitted or getting a job. You have to fill out a statement to prove to your college or university that you can contribute to diversity. So things are just getting worse and worse. But there are multiple reasons why alumni and wealthy people should stop giving to these top institutions. You've detailed some of them. There's tremendous political imbalance. Uh, they don't reflect America in any way, shape, or form. Um, they uh, take up the part of identity politics, uh, grievance politics, far left points of view. Uh, that's one reason. But you know, for people on the left, that may not be enough of a reason. So the second reason is they already have tremendous amounts of money. They're extremely wealthy. Harvard is on track to be wealthier than many of the countries in Western Europe. Uh, enormous war chests. They don't really need any more money. Thirdly, the people that they educate are not only tiny in number, only 4% of college students go to institutions that take fewer than 25% of their applicants. And of course, Harvard and Yale and Princeton are taking more like three or 4% of their applicants. So we're talking about a tiny number of people here, but they're also the most privileged people in the United States. There are many more students at Princeton coming from the top quintile, that is the top 20% of earnings families, uh, than there are in the bottom, from the bottom quintile. There are very few unwealthy students at these institutions. So we're really privileging the privileged 
uh, at top colleges. Why contribute money to people who already have plenty? My my article argues that philanthropists and alumni should really think about taking their money and devoting it to causes that benefit ordinary average people. The disadvantaged get a lot of attention. That's appropriate. But there are people in the middle uh, who are struggling every day to pay their bills, to find medical care, to move to opportunity, uh, to finance the schooling of their children. Uh, there are all sorts of needs. They live in very distressed places by and large. Uh, the heartland tends to be neglected by the elites who focus and concentrate on the coast. Uh, this is a sector of American society that gets very little attention. I guess you could call them deplorables because many of them, not all, of course, uh, vote for Trump. Um, and the elites aren't terribly interested in helping them out, I'm afraid, but they ought to be more interested because these are our fellow Americans. So I make a lot of suggestions in the article about uh, alternatives to donating to these exclusive universities that tend to attract so much and, money. Yeah, let me run something else by you, too, because you made mention of the fact that uh, you have leftists as gatekeepers. So the idea that you can just uh, wave a wand and get more conservative administrators or conservative professors is a lot easier said than done. Uh, the other challenge I would uh, advocate to um, these uh, Ivy League grads and the privileged and those who go on to very successful careers in business and the like uh, in where you are in your professional calling, do your best to eliminate the college degree requirement, the BA requirement, yes. even to get in the door for a job interview, recognizing how devalued that piece of paper is today. And so don't let that be uh, something that keeps a young person out of a job interview and the possibility of getting hired and working his or her way up the corporate ladder where you are. Don't let that be something that... Uh, prevents them. That's a hurdle for them uh, so that you can assess the individual based on the quality of the character and uh, you know what else they've done in their young life rather than just looking at the BA or the BS with emphasis on the BS uh, as a way to uh, pre-qualify somebody to be considered. Yeah, so that is something that I mentioned. There was a, an article in a journal, sort of right-leaning journal called National Affairs by two education scholars, Hess and Allison, and they suggested uh, that employers drop the BA requirement for many of the jobs that don't really require that kind of academic training. Um, they, they're jobs that used to be done by people who didn't have a college degree. And, of course, we go back in time. What we see is that many fewer people went to college uh, in the decades around the uh, World Wars and right after the World War. The GI Bill, of course, changed much of that. Uh, and we do need a, an elite cadre of trained technical people at the top, but many fewer uh, than are probably going to college now. Half the high school population is seeking some kind of higher education. Only half of those actually graduate and get their degree. So, 25% of high school graduates actually obtain a degree. That hasn't changed much over the past uh, several decades. But that still leaves 75% of young people without a college degree who are being shut out of jobs where they might thrive. So uh, a reorientation 
towards uh, decredentialing or de-emphasis on credentials uh, would be a very positive development. It's hard to legislate that. It's very hard to coordinate that. It really requires a culture change or a change in attitude, uh, which also is hard to bring about because the people who are in charge uh, are all people, by and large, who have gone to college, who believe in college, you know, and are attached emotionally uh, and nostalgically to their own institutions. She is Amy Wax, Robert Mundheim, professor of law at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. Amy, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. So it started like this. I stand here today to declare that I am a candidate for president of the United States of America. Uh, Such excitement. It ended like this. I say this with a deep sense of gratitude for every single person who got in this fight. Every single person who just moved a little in their notion of what a president of the United States should look like. An old white guy? I will not be running for president in 2020, but I guarantee I will stay in the fight. Mm -hmm. In part, it ended this way for a lack of authenticity. Her Tom Joad act, the phony baloney, Crocodilia Native American deal, the lie about being fired as a teacher for being pregnant. And also trying to occupy the same lane as the authentic deal when it comes to Bolshevism, and that is Bernie Sanders. There's just not enough room. I don't know why uh, it seems that no Democrat took notice of this, but NBC Wall Street Journal poll at the beginning of February, Democrat primary voters, yeah, they have a net positive impression of socialism, but it's not overwhelming. 40% positive, 23% negative. Now, 40% uh, is a plurality. But the split is not huge, and 40% split among uh, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders was never going to be enough to allow both of them to stay in the race, and it turned out it wasn't. So, you know, her trying to do refried Barack Obama, you didn't build that, just wasn't going anywhere. Frankly, it wasn't red enough. Those great fortunes in America that people built, worked hard, had great ideas, or inherited, those great fortunes were built here in America with workers that all of us paid to educate, with uh, their goods got to market on roads and bridges that all of us helped to build. They were protected in their factories by firefighters and police officers that all of us helped to support. So what we're really saying is, look, just put a little bit back in the kitty. This is what we're asking for. Pay a fair share. 
so the next kid has a chance to build something great and the kid after that and the kid after that. Uh-huh. You didn't build that. Well, that's certainly true of the Bidens, the Biden family, these hillbillies. And that's what I want to reference again. We talked a little bit about Ron Johnson's forthcoming report on corruption in the Obama administration dating back to the Hillary Clinton email investigation and necessarily including the Bidens and Burisma. But we need to get beyond Hunter. I know this is just sort of resuscitating all the Biden cash business, but I go back to Peter Schweitzer, whose book, I can't emphasize it enough, uh, I, th- I believe will be, his book Profiles in Corruption, Abuse of Power by America's Progressive Elite, I believe will be and should be central to the next seven months of this campaign, assuming that Joe Biden continues to roll forward and in, in to the nomination. James and Frank, his two brothers, uh, this uh, from Peter Schweitzer's Profiles in Corruption, How Abuse of Power by America's Progressive Elite, detailing it's well beyond Hunter Biden. Joe Biden's younger brother, James, uh, served as Joe's finance chair of his 1972 campaign. When Joe became vice president, James was welcomed as a guest to the White House. He secured invitations to important functions like state dinner in 2011, the visit of Pope Francis in 2015, and then um, his interest in uh, overseas business deals also dovetailed nicely into what Joe Biden was doing in his official role as vice president of the United States. Consider, won't you, the case of Hillstone International, a subsidiary of a huge construction firm, Hill International. The president of Hillstone International was a guy named Kevin Justice, grew up in Delaware, longtime Biden family friend. He uh, visited the White House in November of 2010, met with a Biden advisor in the office of the vice president. Three weeks later, Hillstone announced that James Biden, Joe's brother, would be joining the firm, this construction firm, as an executive VP. As Hunter had no experience in the oil and gas industry, James had little or no background in housing construction. But it didn't seem to matter to Kevin Justice and Hillstone. He joined Hillstone just as the firm was starting negotiations to win a massive contract in Iraq. Six months later, after James was named executive VP, the firm announced a contract to build 100,000 homes, part of a $35 billion, 500,000 unit project deal won by a South Korean company. Hillstone also received $22 million U.S. federal government contract to manage a construction project for the State Department. That's James. Just one example. No experience. And now he's the beneficiary of the federal government's largesse to a construction company connected to the Biden family. Frank Biden. In March 2009, Vice President Joe Biden landed in Costa Rica, board Air Force Two. Went to the Costa Rican presidential palace for a one-on-one with President Oscar Arias. It was the first time that a high-ranking American official had uh, visited the country since uh, Bill Clinton almost two decades earlier. Joe Biden's trip to Costa Rica came at a fortuitous time for his brother, Frank, details Schweitzer in his book, who is busy working deals in the country. Well, maybe that was the impetus for Joe Biden's visit. Just months after Biden's visit in in August, Costa Rica News announced a new multilateral partnership to reform real estate in Latin America. Uh, Frank Biden, a developer named Craig Williamson, and the Guanacastle Country Club, a newly planned resort, was included in this partnership. Frank's dream was to build in the jungles of Costa Rica thousands of homes, world-class golf course, casinos, anti-aging center. Sounds lovely. The Costa Rican government eager to cooperate with the VP's brother, Frank. And Joe Biden, 
had been tapped by President Obama to act as the administration's point man in Latin America and the Caribbean, just like he was the point man in Ukraine, just like he was the point man in China. And that's where Hunter was doing his business. Frank Biden's vision for the country club received support from the highest levels of the Costa Rican government, despite the fact that he had very identifiable experience building uh, and doing such developments. A letter of intent with Frank's company was signed by the Costa Rican Ministry of Public Education. And then uh, the Obama and Biden administration authorized a $6.5 million U.S. taxpayer-backed loan for a project allowing a company called Go Solar to operate solar power facilities in Costa Rica, Frank's company. Then the launch of a Caribbean energy security initiative announced by Joe Biden in 2014. More taxpayer funding to boost renewable energy projects throughout Ukraine and Jamaica and elsewhere, bringing together firms, including his brother Frank's Sun Fund America, to reap the benefits of this Obama administration initiative. For example, $47.5 million loan to support the construction of a 20-megawatt solar facility in Jamaica. Frank Biden's company announced it had signed a power purchase agreement to build said 20-megawatt solar power facility in Jamaica. Real estate developer, alternative energy magnet, that's Frank Biden in the Caribbean, his other brother, I should say, Jim Biden, James Biden, you know, all of a sudden is a uh, housing impresario in far flung places like Iraq. These are the issues that are going to have to be detailed over the next eight months. And here's how this plays out. It's not that everybody is going to remember every project or every detail of every story involving every family member. It's the overall impression that's created, much like Hillary Clinton in 2016. You're not going to remember every donation that the Clinton Foundation extracted from every foreign government, every instance of Hillary Clinton leveraging her position as secretary of state to launder money through her foundation and enrich her family so that the Clintons could live as ruling elites. You just remember the impression you got as you read the stories. They sounded problematic and a pattern emerged. And that's the same thing you've got at play with the Biden family. This is Dan Prof. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show with uh, Elizabeth Warren bowing out today. And also saying uh, she's not ready to endorse anyone today. It's just, she's still too raw. It's too soon. You, you know she's going to make Bolshevik Bernie work for it. But with her out, uh, it's a, sort of a fun situation, isn't it? Now you have the Dem Socialists down to two white guys from the silent generation for their POTUS choice. So for me, just personally, I'm looking forward to hearing all of these identitarian Democrats, including Bernie and Biden, Tell us how it's it's diversity of ideas. That's what's important. Don't look at my age or gender or skin color. It's what's what's going on between my ears. It's what I think. It's the diversity of ideas between the two of us. That's what's important for the American people to consider. Oh, yes. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by David Marcus, New York correspondent for the Federalist, contributor to the New York Times, New York Post and City mm-hmm. Journal. David, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure. So uh, what about uh, Bernie versus Biden? I don't know how Elizabeth Warren uh, maintains her uh, 
a socialist card in good standing were she to fold with Biden. So I assume that there'll be some kind of workout with Bernie. But uh, regardless, uh, Bloomberg for Biden and let's say just for the sake of argument, Warren for Bernie, does it change the dynamics of the race considerably? I don't know that it does at this point. Um, And in fact, I do think that Warren might want to think about whether she wants to make an endorsement of Bernie just because if his chances don't look great, and I'm not sure that they do right now, um, she hurts herself in terms of dealing with the potential Biden administration and the Democratic Party going forward. So, but no, I, I, I think uh, I think Joe Biden came pretty close to, uh, you know, wrapping it up on Super Tuesday. We'll see. There's a long time to go, but um, it looks pretty good for him. There's a long time to go, and, and even though it sets up for him on, on paper right now, we, we said the same thing prior to Super Tuesday. Many of us did about to Bernie. Uh, that didn't work out. And, uh, you know, I mean, his lead is even in these proportional distribution, uh, this proportional distribution of delegates environment, his lead is hardly insurmountable, 50-some-odd delegates. No, it's not insurmountable, but when you look at the demographics of, like, who's willing to vote, uh, he's, got a, he's got a vastly clearer path. Mm-hmm. And it's now clear that the entire Democratic Party, other than Bernie and AOC, basically have coalesced behind him, you know, which I think is really what propelled him. Uh, to the Super Tuesday victory. Uh, I think that when Pete and Amy dropped out, that was really the game changer. And I think that also, I, I thought, I didn't know that it would, but I think it did hurt Bloomberg. Yeah, now you, you uh, wrote some an interesting piece for uh, the Federalists as well. The 2020 race is now a referendum on Barack Obama. Obviously, that's what Biden would want it to be, uh, and and, uh, uh, and that's what, well, first Bernie and then Trump uh, needs to prevent it from being. Isn't that right? Well, I mean, I think Bernie also wants it to be a a referendum on Obama's administration. I mean, this is the second time that he'll be running head-to-head against a prominent member of that administration. And the question for Democrats is, do they want a party of burn it all down, or do they want a party of slow march towards progress? Right, sort of the uh, revolution versus restoration dynamic that was being bandied about on Tuesday, yes? Yeah, something along those lines. Uh, Ross, and this, and um, whether he endorses or not, this drags Obama into the race. Because this is now, when Bernie and Biden go head-to-head on the debate stage, a lot of that is going to be Biden touting his accomplishments in the Obama administration and Bernie saying, wait a minute, those weren't as good as you're making them out to be. Well, right, and, 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 and you know, Obama and Biden have uh, the Trump card, uh, to borrow a word, uh, which is uh, Obama endorsing Biden because what's left, right? There's no there's no downside now. Uh, so even if I mean, how much more establishment can you make Joe Biden look by endorsing him? It really is sort of built into the price at this point. So why not help cement the referendum on Barack Obama, which probably probably still has majority appeal uh, among that primary electorate? I'm of two minds on this. Um you know, certainly the Clyborne um, endorsement prior to South Carolina was really important and brilliantly timed. Um, I mean, that's something that they could have pulled out of the pocket earlier on to try to get a bump when it looked like he was doing so badly. They did really well to time, time that up for like the day before the election. I think unless Biden looks like he's in trouble, he might actually be better off having Obama not endorse anybody. And then Obama can get up at the DNC and, you know, 
pearl praise on Joe Biden, and, and that'll be the Obama-Biden moment. The, and in that case, Biden can say, I did this by myself. And then and then the unification, you know, him being the great unifier, which, of course, he wants to be perceived as being as well. That that does make some sense. I, I hear that. I want to do a little bit of postmortem on Warren and Bloomberg. We'll do that with David Marcus, New York correspondent for The Federalist, contributing to New York Times, New York Post, and City Journal. More with David Marcus right after this. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're talking to David Marcus, New York correspondent for the Federalist, contributed to New York Times, New York Post, and City Journal. Elizabeth Warren outside her home today announcing she gone. Will you be making an endorsement today? We know that you spoke with both Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders yesterday. Uh, not today. Not, not today. I need some space around this and I and want to take a little time to think a little more. I've been I've been spending a lot of time right now on the question of suspending and also making sure that this works as best we can for our staff, for our team, for our, our volunteers. Mm, I chastened Elizabeth Warren, who's uh, still working through the breakup with the Democrat primary electorate. Ross Dothat, uh, New York Times, tweeting out, Elizabeth Warren ran a campaign premised on her smarts that was doomed by three extremely unsmart decisions. The DNA test at the outset, the undercooked Medicare for all gambit, and the fight with Bernie over his alleged sexism. Uh, I agree with that. I would add one more thing, that even many cultural Marxists tire of constantly being scolded by a woke supremacist like Elizabeth Warren. Do you agree, David Marcus? Yeah, I do. Um, and I think that, um, you know, Bernie does an interesting thing in terms of identity politics where he really tends not to lean into it. And when he does say the stuff that like he has to say, like you can tell that he's sort of being held hostage. Plus, he's got, like, AOC as his, like, you go take care of that. Yes, right. Warren, Warren leaned into that stuff a lot more, and it just looked awkward. It just seemed weird. It didn't play. There was, like, the stuff about, like, you know, asking the seven-year-old trans kid if they oh, would be yeah. willing to approve. And it's like, what are you doing? Like, it doesn't even make any sense. Um, but yeah, I agree with you. I thought there were some, some kind of big missteps Uh Warren, especially since she jumped, I can't remember if she actually got the lead at some point, but she got close several months ago. And then it just kind of, the wheels came off. And, w- and what about, I, I sort of made a snide remark, which is, you know, what I do, uh, at the beginning of our discussion uh, last segment about uh, you're down to two uh, white guys from the silent generation for the identitarian parties. You know, how do they uh, message into that? I mean, the only thing they can do is try to change that with a VP pick. I mean, I don't know what else. I don't know what else they can they can do. You know, Stacey Abrams or you know Kamala Harris, um, somebody like that. Um, beyond that, I don't think they can do much. Um, you know, and this is a reflection of the electorate. This is not a this is not a reflection of. Uh, I mean, it is also a reflection of the party itself. But I mean, Biden's up and, and winning because he got the votes, Bernie's up and winning because he got the votes. So maybe one of the things that it says is that the media and the progressive intelligentsia are more worried about this issue than most Democratic voters are. 
Right. I mean, it, it's something that uh, that uh, going back to Ross Dothat, he he wrote, um, gosh, last year at some point, which is that the country may be incrementally moving left culturally, but the Democratic Party is moving left way, way faster. And uh, yeah. and and the and I think some of these presidential candidates got caught way too far afield, including Warren. Yeah, I think that's right. It's interesting to go back to I think it was the second debate. It might have been the first. I think it was the second one, though. Um, when no, it was the first when they were asked to like raise their hand if they would give free health care to uh, people in the country illegally, and everybody raised their hand except Joe Biden, who kind of raised his hand, but it actually kind of looked like he was trying to make a point. So I mean, it was classic Joe Biden, like <laughs> right in the middle. Um, so yeah, I mean that was that was crazy town, um, and and so many of the, the things that are on their platform today would have been antithetical to the, the party of Obama in 2008, you know, which I wasn't really able to get into in, in the article, but, but that's sort of an interesting dynamic of this as well, because in many ways the party already has moved away from Obama's slow stepping style of liberalism into something that's much more hard charging. I wanted to uh, give you a chance to uh, review your uh, postmortem, uh, which you wrote about on uh, uh, Mike Bloomberg uh, in the Federalist to, you know, what the, the promise you saw in Bloomberg that obviously didn't materialize. Now, again, this is, uh, you know, the, this is a tough business. I thought uh, Joe Biden in South Carolina was nothing more than a dead cat bounce. So there's my mea culpa. Um, but uh, the good news is between you and Mike Bloomberg, you'll always have Samoa. Yes, that's right. And New York City, um, you know, to be honest. No, I'm, I mean, I'm still taking guff from my, because I was in meeting. You know, on, on email with all my colleagues at Federalist, and they were like, you're crazy. And this was starting at the end of Iowa. Um, after Iowa and Biden looked so horrible, and I was like, Biden's not going to make it, man. And the only one other person I think he can was Bloomberg. And it started to look good. Like, at that point, like, he starts rising in the polls. I'm saying, why don't you listen to Dave more often? And then, of course, like, it just completely tanks. But you know, my explanation really is that Biden got his legs under him. Um, Biden was in a lot of trouble. He had a very strong debate, um, and that started his momentum going up. Um, the Clyburn endorsement, I think, was a really big help in South Carolina. And I was dubious that there was enough time between the Saturday South Carolina primary and the Tuesday, two days later of Super Tuesday, for, that, for him to be able to build a bounce. But I think what happened was the bounce started after the debate. And so what we saw in, in South Carolina was actually just the middle of that momentum, not the beginning of it. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to get uh, anybody to bite on this uh, approximation I'm offering. Uh, 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 nobody quite has yet. But th- don't you find Biden to be some sort of approximation of Dole in 96 and Romney in 2012? Everybody was found, was measured and found wanting. So you return to the front runner, the safe choice. Um, the one that had sort of the institutional inertia from uh, behind him from the beginning. Yes, I think I think that's absolutely right. Um, and you know those candidates don't tend to do very well. Um, but you know Biden's not. One of the things I say about both Trump and Obama is they they are they're both sort of cult of personality presidents. Right? They're presidents who, good or bad, people have really strong feelings about. Mm-hmm. Joe Biden is not. He's the type of president I refer to as a manager president, you know, more like a Bill Clinton. Um, one of the ways I describe it is a cult of personality president. You might have a picture of them on, on, on the wall in your living room. Um, in 1996, nobody had a picture of Bill Clinton on their wall. He's not that kind of president. Mm. 
so I think that's part of what Biden is offering is to, to a, a return to a situation where the president is not the leading major figure in the life of so many Americans, but just the guy who's in there doing his job. He is David Marcus, New York correspondent for The Federalist, contributor to New York Times, New York Post, and City Journal. David, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Anytime. Thank you. Take care. you'll know. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. And here we have another case of zero tolerance nonsense of criminalizing growing up. It's so much talk about uh, criminalizing poverty, a phrase that I despise because it starts from the false premise that people are poor and so they commit crimes and thus there should be a culture of non-prosecution because somebody committed a crime because they're poor. When in point of fact, as we know, that the overwhelming majority of people in poor neighborhoods are law abiding. I'm talking about real crimes. And then you have this. This is more reminiscent of the zero tolerance policy in schools where you have the case like in from Florida that we talked about a week or so ago, the six-year-old who had been arrested last fall for throwing a tantrum and kicking somebody at her school, and then she was handcuffed and taken out of school to the police station, charged with assault until those charges were dropped. Absurd. We don't have critical thinking skills. We don't have adults who want to make judgment calls. Instead, we have laws. And so this case from Colorado Springs. Two 10-year-old Colorado boys arrested and charged with felony menacing, a Class 5 felony. The boys had been playing with an orange-tipped toy Nerf gun, an orange Nerf bow and arrow, one summer afternoon, decided to point their weapons at cars as they passed. One of the boys, Gavin Carpenter, uh, was uh, interviewed by a local media outlet, told the reporter last summer he and a friend were playing with Nerf toys at uh, an you know, intersection near their home in Colorado Springs. The toy bow didn't work. Nothing could shoot out of it. Nothing would come out of it. The weapon, well, toy... I had had an orange tip. It was also broken and couldn't shoot anything. They were pretending to shoot cars as they they passed, and when they pointed their gun and bow at a truck that passed by, the driver slammed on his brakes, reversed as fast as he could. Boys ran back to his friend's grandparents' house. The driver rang the doorbell, uh, was very heated, very mad, called the police. Colorado Springs, uh, well, actually, it was the El Paso County Sheriff's deputies that arrived, arrested these two 10-year-olds, arrested them, Gavin and his friend. They came back over, told me my rights, told me what was going to happen. They put handcuffs on me. I got in the car. I told them I had no intention to have scared them or have any threat to their life. They were mugged. They were uh, taken to the Colorado Springs Police Department for mugshots and fingerprinting. They had to hire a lawyer to see if they could have the record of his arrest expunged. The DA refused to do so initially, required that the kids go through a diversion program uh, that included community service, submitting an essay, other tasks before the expungement could happen after 216 days of fighting at the finally the felony was finally expunged so right now if you run gavin carpenter's name for example nothing will show up but he did have a class five felony on his record for at least half a year gavin's dad has tried to uh, have the boys regain the trust they lost in law enforcement He's having them uh, participate in some events with police and deputies. He uh, said, we're just trying to establish now for the boys a few events to help build trust in law enforcement because it was shattered. We want them not to be scared. 
and to show that law enforcement officers are their friends and they need to show them proper respect. That's all well and good on the side of the parents and the dad here and, and law enforcement. But but I mean, at some point, can anybody pump the brakes here? Can anybody I mean, for the the, the, the driver is ridiculous, but it's compounded by uh, a, a law enforcement culture where, again, you don't have professionals able to exercise any judgment. You just want them to be automatons. Well, then why not just replace everyone with, uh, you know, an, an AI head and uh, and a stainless steel body? It'll cut down on pension costs for local and state governments around the country. How about that? This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danproftshow.com. Website, you also podcast there as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. President Trump on with Sean Hannity last night, wide ranging interview and of course including a discussion of the administration's response to the coronavirus and here's what Trump had to say. We're doing a great job. We have a great group. Uh, Mike Pence is doing a fantastic job. I put him in charge of of the group and then we have the greatest doctors in the world. We're also helping other countries. We help a lot of other countries. We would even help Iran if they wanted. You know, they're hit very hard. Uh, but we're helping a lot of other countries. So President Trump, uh, relatively optimistic about the administration's response, as you would expect him to be, trying to offer uh, some what of a calming effect as we continue to yo-yo in the marketplace as uh, sort of an indicator of people's yo-yoing anxiety. Speaking of cruise ships, uh, interesting piece by Jeremy Samuel Faust, and this is the second time in a week that there's been an op-ed at Slate.com that's made sense, which is uh, rather striking, but hey, I'll look for common sense wherever I can get it, and data, and expertise. Dr. Jeremy Faust is at Harvard Medical. Uh, he uh, points to the Diamond Princess data, the other cruise ship in question, as important uh, with respect to the lethality of the virus. He said of the 3,711 people on board, at least 705 tested positive for the virus, which considering the confines, conditions, and how contagious the virus appears to be is surprisingly low. Of those, more than half are asymptomatic, while very few asymptomatic people were detected in China. This alone suggests a having of the virus's true fatality rate, the discussion of the, the uh, uh, fatality rate being at like 2 to 3%, he suggests it's actually much lower. He also suggests that coming in with a high number in the early stages of a viral spread is not unusual, and then that, sort, that uh, tends to track back as you have a public health response. For more on this topic, let's uh, talk to another expert. Why don't we? Because I would like if everybody who is engaged in fact-free hysterics would calm the blank down a bit. So perhaps <laughs> Dr. Robert Sintrenberg can help us. He is Advocate Lutheran General Hospital's Infectious Disease Director. Dr. Sintrenberg, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. 
So I know we're not supposed to, you know, be in uh, heavy petting people that have tested positive for coronavirus and other such uh, commonsensical approaches to uh, quelling the spread of the virus in terms of what we can do individually. But how would you assess the public health response from the combination of experts like yourself to government officials? And uh, what, if anything, more should be done at that level, the expertise and funding level that we're not doing? Uh, part of the problem is this is uncharted territory. So you you know you can prepare all you want, but until you actually have an outbreak, you you don't really know how to do it. Uh, we're finding that at both the government levels and even at local levels too. I think the biggest thing that has hampered our understanding of this epidemic is the denominator. We don't know how many people have been infected, and and at least in this country. Um, we've had a lot of difficulty getting people tested. As of last week, the CDC had only allowed testing on about 500 Americans, which is incredibly low. We're, uh, we've had some roadblocks with our health departments allowing the testing or authorizing the testing. And because of that, that does two things. One, we can't identify people in the community who might have the disease without symptoms. And we also can't identify what the denominator is. We can't calculate that. And I think that's, that relates to what you were talking about earlier, the mortality rate. It, we, we don't have no idea what the mortality rate is until we know how many people have the disease. Right now, we have no idea how many people have the disease, but it's likely a lot more than we think. Now, I would look at that as good news in that the denominator is probably a lot higher than we think. Therefore, the mortality rate may be quite lower than we think. What about commercial flying? United Airlines announced yesterday they're cutting uh, 10% of their domestic flights, 20% of their international flights. President Trump says it's safe to fly. What say you? I think uh, it it's really a personal decision. So the truth is, if you're obviously you, you shouldn't go and can't go to areas where this virus is prevalent, which would be countries like Iran and South Korea. <clears throat> uh, i have to cancel my trip to Tehran. In terms of yeah. safety of airplanes, uh, you know, you think, well, you're going to be trapped in an airplane with uh, someone who might be infected with something. It turns out airflow in airplanes is not really too dangerous. The the air is, is HEPA filtered and recirculated. So, the risk of catching something airborne in an airplane is actually pretty low. The bigger concern in airports and airplanes is your hands. And what we know about this disease and, and many, many other viral illnesses is that they're sometimes more commonly transmitted by contact than they are by droplet, which is someone coughing or sneezing onto you. So you get it on your hands, you touch your mouth, your your nose, or your eyes, and you can actually infect yourself. And that's why there's such a big push for vigilant hand washing, and that applies uh, airports, airplanes. There are no medical reasons why you can't fly or shouldn't fly to areas where the virus is not present in any large amount. Uh, but I think people are anxious, and if, uh, my advice is if you're going to be anxious the whole time on your trip, 
then you should you should consider postponing it until a time when you're not going to feel anxious because you really won't enjoy your trip. Yeah, you might consider taking a logical a logic class at the local community college too. <laughs> I, I wonder why um, there's not enough amplification of successful responses to date. And I, I just go back again to Taiwan, which uh, of course uh, the Far East, uh, right there next to China, uh, Taiwan isolated from uh, international health organizations like the W uh, World Health Organization because of China. And uh, Ta- China, uh, Taiwan, excuse me, uh, has 42 isolated cases. And we, we've talked about it on this show before. They, when they got word about this virus spreading, the same time China did, ostensibly, in December, they took decisive action. They informed the public every step of the way. They uh, quarantined cases, uh, individuals who uh, tested positive and uh, provided uh, you know, treatment available or let the disease run the course. And uh, and this has been rather successful. Singapore seems to be have done a, a pretty good job to date isolating this as well. And they f- sort of followed a similar protocol, even though they picked it up a little bit after Taiwan did. And I wonder, you know, there's the China model and the Iran model, which is propaganda and lying and obfuscation. And then there's what Taiwan and Singapore and I would say, generally speaking, the United States have done. And uh, it seems to be the response seems to be disproportionate to the effective response of government combined with public health experts. Well, I mean, that's a really good summary. And I think that we, we do need to learn lessons from, from how this virus has been contained in other countries. And you mentioned Taiwan and Singapore, and they absolutely do stand out. Um, I should mention that, that China got off to a, a really slow start, and they, you know, they messed it up from the beginning. So the, there was a, essentially a denial of this epidemic uh, in the very beginning in Wuhan. And by the time the Chinese government acknowledged that there was a problem, it was too late. It had already gotten out of Wuhan. Remember, Wuhan also is a major transportation hub in central China. It's like the Chicago of of China. And uh, so by the time they acknowledged there was a problem, the virus had gotten out probably to every corner of the world. But I will say this, that the number of cases that are diagnosed in China now seem to be going down every day. I think they have uh, gotten a hold of it to some extent. They have used some draconian measures with isolation. uh, that, that, That actually does work. The question is, how well can we do it in this country? Well, we need our, our citizens to uh, cooperate. Uh, I, you know, there, I know there was one case in New Hampshire. There was a a person who uh, was under home quarantine and instructed to stay at home, oh. but instead went out to some social events and violated the home yeah. quarantine right at Dartmouth. And that's disturbing. Uh, so we need our population to buy into this and to understand this is absolutely controllable and containable but we need everyone's participation. Uh, Wuhan is the uh, Chicago of China, except Wuhan has better funded public sector pensions. Uh, Dr. Robert (laughs) Citrenberg, he is the Advocate Lutheran General Hospital's Infectious Disease Director. Dr. Citrenberg, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your insights. My pleasure. Thank you. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of loving you. Doctor? 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 Doctor?
sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. I want to talk about Chuck Schumer's targeting of Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. But I also want to talk about an underappreciated case before the high court this session that will have important constitutional implications. And that involves the dearly departed Elizabeth Warren's Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. But first, uh, Chuck Schumer again at a a pro-abortion rally. And by the way, as you'll hear from the MC, it was a pro-abortion rally, not a pro-choice rally. Uh, No safe, legal and rare. That is long gone. And the masks are off with respect to the pro-aborts. Chuck Schumer threatening, I think is fair to say, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh if they dare to rule in favor of the Louisiana heartbeat law that's come before the court. And they're taking away fundamental rights. I want to tell you, Gorsuch, I want to tell you, Kavanaugh. You have released the whirlwind, and you will pay the price. You won't know what hit you if you go forward with these awful decisions. President Trump uh, reacting uh, in his interview with Sean Hannity last night to those threats, plural, by Schumer. As far as uh, Schumer is concerned, that was a terrible thing he said. I was... I was amazed by it. And if that were a Republican, you would see really bad things happening. It's very, uh, very unequal justice. And it's a disgrace that he was able to say something like that. Well, of course, we know if it was a Republican, you would be hearing uh, a hue and cry from the Beltway Big Government Press Corps because that Republican, Donald Trump, has taken all kinds of flack over the years from Beltway media outlets for any criticism on the merits of any judge at any level, even most recently uh, suggesting, and I disagree with him here, but the idea that suggesting that Sotomayor and Ruth Bader Ginsburg recuse themselves from any cases involving Trump, suggesting that is destabilizing, that is uh, an indication of his authoritarianism in opposition to an independent judiciary and so on and so forth, the, the, the lack of belief in separation of powers and all of the other blather of the D.C. press corps on this topic. No. Do I agree with him that they should have to recuse themselves? No. Can he make statements? Can he disagree with what a judge at, frankly, any level uh, rules on the substance of it? That's much different than saying you Gorsuch, you Kavanaugh, if you rule in this way, if you rule against my position, then you're going to have hell to pay. Coming from the Senate minority leader, not an inconsequential post. It's a little bit different, isn't it? And, uh, you know, barely a word of concern from those same individuals that are always predicting the end of our representative republic with each Trump pronouncement. Uh, John Roberts made the rare comment on a politician's criticism of the court. Responding to Schumer, he said, justices know that criticism comes with the territory, but threatening statements of this sort from the highest levels of government not only inappropriate, they're dangerous. All members of the court will continue to do their job without fear or, fa- or favor from whatever quarter. Mm-hmm. Chief Justice Roberts, of course, is central to uh, this Louisiana heartbeat law case. And so we'll see where he comes down. An opportunity to um, perhaps uh, reestablish some confidence among conservatives as well as originalists, not just political, but constitutional, among originalists 
as to his jurisprudence. We'll see. There's another this other case, though, that I wanted to uh, tackle as well. Well, um, you know, I, you really should hear from them. You really should hear from them because these are the important people in the Democrat Party, more so politically and culturally than even Pagliacci. Two of the socialist Spice Girls also weighed in on this. They were at the rally, a rally that was emceed by this individual. Let's hear it for Senator Schumer! Let's hear it for all the people of abortions! Let's hear it for our trans folks who have abortions! Okay, okay. Okay, okay. Let's hear it for the men who had abortions. As the Denise Williams of the pro-death lobby, let's hear it for the boy who we killed in the womb. Rashida Tlaib and Ayanna Presley, two of the Socialist Spice Girls. You call them the squad. I call them the Socialist Spice Girls. Rashida Tlaib, MFR Spice. Remember, we're going to impeach this MFR. Ayanna Presley, Francis Parker Spice. Little bit uh, parochial on my part. Little bit inside baseball. Ayanna Presley went to a prestigious, because it's expensive, high school, private high school in Chicago named Francis Parker that is an incubator for champagne socialists like herself that are, you know, all of a sudden down with the woke struggle. Uh, Let's start with uh, Ayanna Presley uh, on the topic of abortion. And we have two alleged sexual predators on the bench of the highest court of the land with the power to determine our reproductive freedoms. I still believe, Anita Hill, I Yeah, so you get it. Uh, throw Clarence Thomas in there as well. Why not, huh? Two alleged sexual predators. Okay. MF or Spice, Talib. This past year, I realized, my, 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 are they obsessed with our bodies, how we talk, how we look, what we stand for. I mean, this type of policing of our bodies is so interconnected to all the social stru- justice movements all around the country. I don't understand that, uh, but I, I, I do apologize for allowing Rashida Tlaib to suggest that you think about her body. All right, this other case, uh, Wall Street Journal calling it the constitutional case of the year. This is Celia Law versus CFPB, uh, Elizabeth Warren's pet agency, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, created under Obama as an independent agency within the Federal Reserve, is one of only three independent, three other independent analogs in American history, the Office of Independent Counsel, Special Prosecutor, Social Security Administration, and Federal Housing Finance Authority. None of those other agencies, those possess the CFPB's enormous regulatory power. And these independent agencies are exempt, uh, you know, by by creation. Uh, There's a single director. The president can only fire for cause. That's CFPB. so the directors, in short, the president of his own little regulatory agency, can only fire for cause. When Congress established the independent counsel within the Justice Department, um, the FHFA structure is currently being litigated. Uh, the SSA single director also was uh, 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 termed to have raised significant constitutional questions. Uh, that was Bill Clinton saying that. Uh, but uh, none of those agencies, importantly, have the kind of regulatory power over financial institutions and thus our economy that the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau does to, to suggest that this uh, this director is sort of a power unto himself, unelected, is sort of uh, the fundamental example 
of the fourth branch of government, the unelected bureaucracy, the administrative state. Uh, so the question is whether or not the Supreme Court lets the CFB stand as is, does it or, uh, or toss out to toss out the entire law that uh, gave rise to it and all CFPB actions to date. Uh, this is a huge case when it comes to the administrative state under talked about, just as the deep state was under talked about until Trump arrived and uh, the curtain was pulled back. And we understand how FISA and at senior leadership, at least in CIA and of course FBI had been behaving with respect to our politics. Well, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which is uh, only a decade in its existence, this is the time to nip it in the bud, as it were, unconstitutional in form as it is. This is Dan Proft. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Two installments of Campus Speed. We talked to University of Pennsylvania law professor Amy Wax earlier in the show about uh, defunding your alma mater. Stop contributing to your alma mater. There's all sorts of better places to put your money. And also on the corporate side, start um, uh, decredentializing employment to the extent you have control or influence over hiring and firing decisions to not make the BA a deal breaker for hiring uh, a young person. Uh, Mark Bauerlein joins us now. He is a English professor at Emory University and another example of how tenure works against the left-wing establishment, just like Amy Wax's, can actually speak freely without the fear of uh, at least termination, if not uh, 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 social reprisals. And uh, Mark, thanks for joining us. We talked about uh, earlier in the week on the show about this uh, write-up you did on this survey at UNC Chapel Hill about uh, the censorious culture on campus, the spin being that it was peer-to-peer, not professor or administrator to students. So there was no power imbalance that was found in this survey conducted by a couple of Tar Heel professors who found that basically by a factor of three to one, liberals on the campus of North Carolina never feel like they need to uh, keep their views quiet for fear of retribution whereas uh, uh, whereas conservatives do. They certainly do. And one of the extraordinary things that we've seen in the last roughly 20 years is the liberal bias and the retribution that comes for conservatives expressing their opinions has drifted down the institutional ladder. It is now the other students, the undergraduates. They are the most ferocious political correctness, social justice warriors, and they frighten. Not only do they frighten the other students, my liberal colleagues, who are generally moderate, uh, uh, reasonable people, they're frightened of the students as well. And, of course, the administrators are scared to death of the students. I mean, a president's nightmare is five African-American students marching toward his office with a grim look on their faces. This sends the most powerful president in the country 
who makes $800,000 a year, who oversees an institution with a $3 billion endowment, he starts shaking at his desk. <laughs> what am I going to do? Well, this, this is, is where th- we are now. And, of course, the administrators and the faculty, they create. Exactly. Well, that's what I was going to say. This is this is Dr. Frankenstein, uh, isn't it? Uh, that, that not only at the at the collegiate level, but uh, the uh, teachers at the K through 12 level train them well. You know, in January of 1987, on the campus of Stanford University, Jesse Jackson, who was gearing up for another presidential run in 1988, led 500 students, most of them the African-American students on campus, in a march around campus that night, and one of their chants was, hey, hey, ho, ho, Western culture's got to go. Western culture was a required freshman course in the general ed curriculum. And the accusation was this is Eurocentric, it's too white, it's too male. And what happened, I mean, most of the students loved the course, but you had this vocal minority that had sort of a civil rights hangover of moral authority and the faculty complied, and the administrators dumped that old course and created a new multicultural course, and the young activist students took a lesson. Hey, if we're loud, if we're angry, if we march, if we break the rules, we can get it done. Yeah, well, I mean, perhaps the most pronounced case that was actually caught on video was the response to the thuggery on the campus of Evergreen State University against Brett Weinstein, a uh, leftist professor mugged by the reality of campus culture where the university president was shouted down he he it, and and did nothing and it was the mob that was running that school and running any adult out of that school who wasn't complying and think about how intoxicating that is to a 19 year old i'm in college i'm i'm sort of under pressure i have got people grading me i'm 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 away from home and if I act out in this way, I get the highest figures in the institution bowing down before me. I mean, what is better for a 19-year-old rebellious spirit, and they're all a little bit rebellious, to have the authorities say, uh, yes, yes, you're right, well, whatever you want, we will do it, we will do it. The indulgence is mighty tempting for these kids to do it again and again, and they will turn on their peers, especially in the social media world. I mean, that's, that's the big factor that has enhanced the peer mob aspect. Facebook and Twitter and Instagram are now amazing instruments of peer pressure, peer shaming. I want to pick, uh, pick that up uh, after the break. Uh, more with Mark Bauerlein, who's an English professor at Emory University, right after this. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. We're back with Mark Bauerlein. He's an English professor at Emory University. We're talking about uh, the peer-to-peer shaming and silencing happening on college campuses per this University of North Carolina survey that was done by a couple of professors. And... um, uh, it's you know where to begin here in terms of addressing this. One is what's the message to conservative students who are spiking their opinions for fear of reprisal? How should they comport themselves on a college campus? And number two, what does it say about adults in society, not just in charge of uh, academic institutions, but the 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 parents of these kids who are being who feel like they have to self police their expression, who are being silenced? 
uh, intimidated into silence, at least, and and just sort of generally what it uh, portends for the future of uh, uh, open and honest discourse and the free exchange of ideas in a free society. I think that it's it's a very hard problem for these conservative students because most of them they go to college and they have some ambitions. They they want to maybe go to graduate school. They want to go to 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 the business school, and they prefer to pretty much stay out of this kind of trouble. They keep their heads down, they get their work done, and then they go have a party, you know, on, on, on the weekend. There's a video from a few years ago of students at Dartmouth University. It's in the library, and it's during finals week. And the students are studying, and suddenly you hear this line of marchers coming through. And it's a bunch of social justice activists yelling about racism at the Dartmouth campus. And you can see all the kids who are studying, they've got their books, their computers, they're at their little tables. And as the marchers are passing by yelling at them, they're just kind of lowering their heads. They're trying to ignore what's going on. They just want it to go away so that they can do their work. And it's hard to say, okay, what should they do? If they get up and try to confront these other kids, they get out of here, I'm trying to study. That's gonna go on social media and that student could be a target of an email campaign of complaints, actually of charges of harassment sent to the school. So they're, they're in a very tough line, and the parents don't want their kids to get into this kind of war either. I mean, they're, they're, they're there to go to college. They're paying a lot of money. They want to get the good grades. They don't want to spend their time on this nonsense. So it really is up to some administrators to say, look, you do this, and you're expelled. Mm. The hard line is the only thing that is going to stop them. If they don't pay a penalty, they're going to keep doing it. Uh, I wanted to get your reaction to this as well. I mean, there's a lot of discussion from uh, Mark, cultural Marxists on campus about uh, the rape culture on campus. I don't think this is what they mean. Uh, this uh, piece by RealClearInvestigations.com uh, Buried within an influential campus sexual assault survey last year by the Association of American Universities is evidence of hundreds of incidents of inappropriate and potentially criminal behavior by faculty and staff against female students. The anonymously conducted survey at 33 elite schools ranging from Harvard to Ohio State uh, generated widespread news coverage by uh, reaffirming the stat that one in four college women will be assaulted or raped before they graduate, which is very much... um, in question, but it didn't talk much about the uh, incidents uh, of where the power relationship is uh, different between administrator and student or uh, faculty and student. And AAU wouldn't turn over their data to RCI because they said it's, you know, it's better that an independent, uh, uh, an independent survey experts uh, need to interpret the data and so on and so forth. But the, the data that came back from their anonymous survey was unmistakable that this is a, an issue at some level. And it's uh, interesting that um, a left-leaning group like AAU wouldn't want this addressed. They are not only a left-wing group, but they're also an interest group. They are representatives of the universities, the schools, the colleges. They are going to consider the impact on 
their their members. Uh, the the ideological commitment would be to female students, especially in the Me Too era. But their institutional commitment is to the universities, and that's what we have to understand about administrators on college campuses. They want to protect the brand. They're sitting on lots and lots of money, lots of people, lots of federal contracts, lots of projects going on, and they don't want bad publicity, and they don't want litigation. They want the wheels to keep turning, the money to keep coming in, flowing through. So we have to you know, wonder, okay, what did the AAU find in, in putting this in? How did they define assault? What counts as an assault? And we know this is where the numbers on, quote, rape culture on campus get very fuzzy. Is, is, is you know, an assault, a, you know, a girl, a guy, a guy grabs a girl by the behind at a, at a, at a frat party where everyone's drinking. And, and she turns and says, knock it off. And he laughs and walks away. Is that an assault? Does that count as an assault? We know, I'm college, college is in, in some ways, it's a crazy world outside the classroom. Uh, you, you also get faculty members who are in, sometimes in intense relationships with students, learning relationships, and that those can spill, emotional things can get involved. And, and it, it's a very human world where frailties are going to come into play. But it, so the, it, I, I think that... It, that the AAU should release all that data, and let's try and get a sober assessment of what's really going on. But it's hard to get sober assessments of things uh, in in today's heated climate. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just the, the, these organizations. I, I think that's a pretty good distillation of it, too, because you know it's just uh, time and again it turns out that. Uh, what they're doing is never about what they say they're doing or the why they're doing it is never about uh, the why they say they're doing it. As, so as in this case, you know, this survey to focus on the culture uh, on campuses where women are being assaulted and that we need to talk about female safety on college campus. Happy to have that conversation, but it needs to be across the board. So it needs to be about safety on campus across the board, necessarily including the adults on campus, the administrators, the staff, the professorate, and that's where they come up short. And so, you know, it it, it prompts the question: Well, why? What what are you hiding? What is this really about? And I think you provided a good as good an explanation as one exists on it. He is Mark Borline. He is a professor of English at Emory University. Mark, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Take care. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And uh, Mark Perry, our friend at Carpe Diem, always gives us updates on these higher education statistics that are so useful as we're always forced to listen to invented statistics about the gender disparity and things like compensation or achievement, the uh, glass ceilings that are forever holding women down. It's just not the case. It's not the case, generally speaking. 
it's also not the case when you start to control for variables that are indicative of a proper analysis. This uh, college degrees, and think about this is the question I ask every time that Mark Perry offers this update, which is think about the national crisis we would be having if the uh, gender disparities were reversed when it comes to the male-female share of bachelor's degree by major over the last 50 years. In 2018, women earned 62% or more of the bachelor's degrees in nine out of 16 academic fields. Health professions, 84.5%, greatest gender disparity for either sex for the 16 majors. Public administration, 82%, education, 82%, psychology, 79%, English, 71%, foreign languages, 69%, communication and journalism, 66%, biology, 62%. Visual and performing arts, 61%. In point of fact, with respect to biology, women have earned a majority of degrees in biology for every year since 1988. They've earned 60% of the degrees in eight of the last 17 years, including a peak share of 62%, both in 04 and 18. In six of the nine fields above, some of the uh, traditional liberal arts fields, as well as business, math sciences, physical sciences, engineering, computer science. Six of the nine fields above, women have never earned fewer than 60% of bachelor's degrees in any year since 1971. Health professions, public administration, education, English, foreign languages, visual performing arts. In uh, 2018, the female shares of bachelor's degrees in all of the 16 academic fields except business increased from the previous years. The biggest being a 1.8 percentage point increase in female share of engineering degrees from 20.4 in 17 to 22.2 in 2018, which is an all-time high. There are only two academic fields where women were significantly underrepresented in 2018 and have been historically engineering, as you would guess, I just said, 22 percent, computer science, 20 percent. It's interesting also to note the female share of computer science degrees increased every year between 72 and 84 when it reached a peak of 37 percent before falling almost every year since then to a low of 18 percent in 08 less than half the share in 1984. Now, since 2008, it's gradually increased up to 20%. But for whatever reason, women's interest in pursuing degrees in computer science peaked 35 years ago and declined steadily ever since then, except for a small uptick in recent years. Well, it certainly can't be because they don't have access to computer science coursework if they want it and to pursue computer science degrees if they want it. The same goes for hard sciences and math with the focus of education reform on women being pushed into STEM. It turns out that the academic interests of men and women vary significantly, and it has nothing to do with discrimination, particularly in this climate, and particularly when you consider the participation in various majors over time. Uh, Would you argue that uh, there is less access and opportunity and focus on women in higher ed and generally in society in terms of their education and employment than there was 30 years ago? You couldn't argue that credibly. Shocking. Men and women are different. This is the Dan Proft Show.